Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode seven, I interviewed Dr. Gwendolyn Cartledge. Dr. Cartledge is a prolific researcher in the area of reading and culturally relevant material for diverse learners. She reflects on what it was like growing up as the only black girl in an all-white school and the impact that has had on her research. She also talks about the importance of fostering one-on-one time to read with children and fostering a growth mindset in emerging and reluctant readers. Dr. Cartledge gives us some good leads and advice on how to find culturally relevant material, specifically for African-American children. It was so lovely to catch up with Dr. Cartledge. I hope you learn as much from her as I did during this interview. Good morning, Dr. Cartledge. Good morning. I'm so glad that you could join us for the Mindful Literacy podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited about doing this. Good. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, good. Me too. Um, You know, I have to say you were one of my advisors on my in my doctorate dissertation, and you gave me such an incredible opportunity to work on your federally funded grant project that we that we put our heart and soul into for over, well, for me, it was <laughs> three years. For you, it was much longer than that. Right, yeah. And, you know, I learned so much just from uh, from that project content-wise, but also just how to be a lifelong learner and a scholar. And you had this dream for this project for many years before you know, it came to fruition. And so I'm keeping that in the back of my mind while I'm, when I'm nurturing my, this dream of, you know, Mindful Literacy Columbus. So I thank you so much for being my teacher. Oh, well, that's, that's a wonderful compliment because that's what um, teaching is all about. It's not so much um, achieving a product, but it is, you know, helping others to want to learn and to pursue. I mean, it's, it's all a, um, well, learning is a marathon. It's a lifelong experience. And we never reach the point where we think we have know it all. But to have a former student to say, you know, I've, uh, I not only that I learned a lot, but that I want to pursue this mission too. That is just so heartwarming and just so fulfilling. <laughs> so thank you. And thank you for being a wonderful student. I do want to say that one of the things that I learned very early in my life in teaching and that was reinforced when I was a, a student at the um, University of Pittsburgh in the nationality rooms when we would go into the Chinese room, the room was always oval or round, round table. And the whole notion was that students learn as much from their professors as the professors learn from students. And I found that to be true, and especially with students like you. So thank you. 
Yes, of course. Yes, that is it truly, I think, at the heart of the, the even just the name of mindful literacy. It's when I'm teaching a student how to read, I'm learning just as much, if not more, sitting next to them as they are sitting next to me. And I think it's just the most beautiful thing. Yes, it is. It is. And to see a student light up and be inspired and excited about something, it's just makes your day, not your life. <laughs> totally. So I, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for our listeners on the project that we worked on. And then from there, I want to hear about you know, what you're doing. You're still teaching in a different capacity, but you are still teaching. So um, the, the project we worked on um, was a repeated reading intervention. And we we're putting this repeated reading intervention in computer-assisted instruction, and all of that had been done before. But the piece that was really unique about our project was you, had, you knew that the actual material that children were reading had a huge impact on their motivation, their empowerment, their background knowledge, their ability to really just get hooked in and interested. And so the notion of culturally relevant material was a, the driving force behind our project. And we specifically looked at African-American children mm -hmm. and how we could mitigate some of the risk factors that they had in acquiring literacy skills using um, culturally relevant material that they could engage with. Right, yes. And so I think this is, um, it's certainly a topic that you've been studying almost your whole career and one that's particularly relevant today, in, you know, in light of, you know, the social justice issues that we are all looking at trying to solve together and Black Lives Matter and, and everything seems like it's kind of coming back to our work with culturally relevant material and really teaching teachers and, and the, like, the people on the whole planet how to embrace different cultures and and learn from each other. Yeah, uh, let me just say um, a little bit about that in terms of my own background. Um, I, um, I I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania, just southeast of, of Pittsburgh, and actually um, uh, a steel mill town. Um, and uh, so we, I went to school, was predominantly white, and uh, I've always been you know, um, a, a curious kind of child, and I really loved reading. Um, and I was, um, but it, we didn't have a lot of culturally diverse books. As a matter of fact, we didn't have any <laughs> at all in school. Uh, my parents um, moved to the area before I was born, um, several years before I was born, but they moved there um to work in the steel mills and um but they brought with them the books that they had from their schooling in the south they came from south carolina and segregated schools and that sort of thing so they had a couple of books that um were written by and about african-americans and my favorite author at that time and still continues to be one of my favorites was paul lawrence dunbar and I remember reading those stories over and over again. And because they attracted me so much, 
um, it made a real impression on me how important stories that look like you and, and uh, represent you and represent your experiences um, will, you know, attract you to want to read more. So uh, because I didn't have a lot of those books when I was going to school, um, I just felt it was important to make sure that children, in my case, African-American children, had as many of those books as they possibly could uh, in beginning and developing reading. So that was part of my, you know, my, um, what triggered me to, to focus on this. And then, of course, um, two other things, if, uh, in terms of the project that you were talking about, that related very much to that. And that is one, we had done some research and, um, and there was very good evidence that um, repeated readings uh, was what we call an evidence-based uh, approach. However, um, doing that was largely one-on-one -on -one and it was extremely time-consuming. And when we went into the schools where poor children were in urban schools, uh, they lacked resources in terms of uh, professionals being there and being able to work with um, as many children as needed that kind of service. And so um, I had the idea that if we could combine one very attractive stories with evidence-based practices, i.e. repeated readings. And if we could set it up in such a way that it could be transmitted through technology where we didn't have to rely on um, professionals uh, that perhaps teacher assistants or someone else in the school could take youngsters through this program that it could be something used with all children, but particularly in schools where the resources are limited. So that, that um, was part of my dream. <laughs> um, that is still floating around somewhere. <laughs> you know, we've made a lot of progress, but it still hasn't come to fruition in, in terms of its availability in the schools, yeah. We felt that. Sorry, can you give me an update on, on where where we are with that? Well, um, well, you know, I've relocated from Columbus um, to the Maryland area, but right before I relocated, I was told I was contacted by the university, uh, telling me that um, there had been progress and that um, there were connections in terms of other, uh, this one particular agency was exploring the possibility of uh, setting it up so that it would be available commercially. But that was right before the virus hit. And making connections with people at the university, because, you know, it's everybody's gone except those who are essential. And that particular office is not considered to be as essential right now. So waiting perhaps until the fall um, to see the extent to which the university is opening up so I can make contacts and see uh, if there's been uh, continued follow through. 
they they get reach out to me every few months or maybe yeah every semester or so to let me know how things are going so it's still uh limping along <laughs> well and when we spoke on the phone before this um before this interview you were saying oh, I was just digging up those passages we wrote because before we could really put these passages on a computer program, we had to actually interview children, decide what was culturally relevant, equate the passages for grade levels. We had lots of eyes and as, as you like to say, gray matter on these stories. Right, exactly. And you were telling me you were digging them up. You were trying to find them. Yes, well, they they were in, uh, buried deep in, into my computer, <laughs> and I did uh, I did find them, and um, but I haven't, um, and I've been using them to some extent, but I haven't uh, been using them through the computer the way that we did. Um, yeah, I'm just um, waiting to see how things are developing and how I might use them the be in the best way. Yes. So can you, can you explain how, why and how you, why you've dug them up and how you're using them? Yes. In light of COVID, it's because of COVID too, really. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, well, right before I came here, I was uh, doing some tutoring in the, um, in the Columbus schools. And um, I didn't actually use them in the schools um, for a couple of reasons, because the teachers had given us a, uh, some materials that we were supposed to use. And then at the, by the time I realized that I, was not I wasn't able to use those materials as um, effectively as I had expected, um, then I began to um, resort to my own materials. Now, one of the things that I did um, with the children in, uh, in Columbus, I was assigned two little boys and that I think I would, uh, they were in first grade, but I think I would be accurate in saying to some extent, they were reluctant readers, one more so than the other. They, the one, um, the youngsters really did want to read. The other one was preoccupied with, you know, some things at home. But at any rate, um, what I realized that I needed to do was to really get the youngsters motivated and interested in reading. And I had to go beyond the passages that we developed. So one of the things that I did was to, um, I thought, what's at that point, what's the most exciting concept with a lot of little first grade black boys? <laughs> and I came across the idea of Black Panther, that movie that had just been out. They were terribly excited about it. So I decided to go to the uh, bookstore to get some books that have been written for children. And what I did, and you'd be <laughs> tickled with this, because we spent a lot of time writing passages for children. We interviewed them and, and so forth. So this is along the lines of what we did. Um, I just took, I didn't find the books as they were written to be very um, 
conducive to a beginning beginning reader. Um, they were intended for that age group, but they used a lot of words that um, would be hard to read and, and that sort of thing. So I just rewrote the books. <laughs> and uh, so it's along the lines of what we did before, and they were over the moon. They really, really enjoyed those books. The one youngster, I rewrote them and I had I did little stickers for each page so they would see the pictures. But what they had to write, um, read was what I had written, not the not what was in the book. So the one little uh, boy um, in particular, he wanted all of the stickers so he could take them back to his class and read them on his own. So it was it was sort of affirming to me uh, that I was onto something that was worthwhile if we could just. Um, sort of package it and get it put together so but in the interim um i've been working with my um my little nieces and the one is um, just finished first grade and i thought it would be great to give her the first grade and the second grade passages for for fluency so that's what i've been doing with with them now and how does she like those passages she's doing well she's such a well, of course, she's my niece. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but she's she's a good learner. She's very compliant and she's doing quite well with them. I love that story of you rewriting the book to match the level of the child so that he could access the print. That's incredible. I'm wondering, you know, you had a career in the school system before you started I'm teaching at Ohio State. You're a professor at Ohio State for how long? Um, well, I was at uh, Ohio State for about 30 years, from 86 to, well, and my second retirement was uh, 2017. So you could do do the math there. But, um, but I was at Cleveland State for about 11 years prior to that. So Okay, so... I mean, you have been training teachers how to teach reading for, is it fair to say, over 40 years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind. <laughs> <laughs> and you retire. And I'm wondering what inspired you to want to go back into the school system to tutor children. I love this story. I think that's what I'm going to end up doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I guess it's partly just in my genes or blood. Um, you know, when I was a, a youngster, my parents used to say that I was a natural teacher. And, you know, they just, um, I was always wanting to teach. Um, but um, it's, you know, you can't pass up a need. But the other thing is, I wanted to be in the schools to see what was going on. And I found that when I was working with with, um, with you guys, with my, my doctoral students, I mean, um, working in the schools, it was, it was nice when you come back and you talk about what you were doing, but it was even better when I went out and I could see what was going on. And I could see the students. I could see how things were different or had changed from the time that I was teaching. It's one thing to be a um, 
a university professor and over a period of time, you realize the distance between what you're talking about and what's going on in the schools. Uh, for example, I, I did, uh, when I taught school, I taught first in, um, in the suburban area, um, uh, sort of working to middle class uh, community, predominantly white where I grew up. And then I went into the city of Pittsburgh and there I taught in special education in, in, um, in the suburban area, I taught in general ed. But, and then after, you know, I got my doctorate, I went into the university and I was teaching um, a lot of my experiences, but after a while, I realized that I had not been in the schools for quite a while. Ohio State gave me the opportunity to do that because it was a lot of hands-on research. And so when my students would go out, I would go out with them. And one of the first things that struck me after being out of the, the um, public schools for about <clears throat> 12 or 13 years was that we had such a diverse population in our schools. I mean, there were children, <clears throat> And this was in the inner city. Uh, there were children, they come to school with clothes from just about every country you could imagine. I mean, it wasn't just one particular ethnic or racial group. It was from all over the globe. And these children just got off the boat, many of them. And so they had on, um, they had not transitioned to um, Americanized clothing and many of them were still speaking the, the language that um, was uh, spoken at home. And, um, and it made you very much aware that uh, teachers were being challenged with teaching different populations. It's not just what we consider the typical American student. And so it also made me very much aware that um, when I talk about, um, you know, teacher education, I needed to be um, much more in tune to what teachers were experiencing, as well as the children. So it gave me an opportunity to work with the children. And um, I never like to pass up that opportunity and to, to see whether or not the ideas I have have any merit. <laughs> And that's a great, and I think, you know, one of the things that I jumped straight to when I went back to the classroom as an intervention specialist were repeated readings. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did a training um, this past weekend for parents and teachers on, on reading fluency and repeated readings and just the power that they have and like, it actually is an evidence-based practice and that's been rigorously researched for over 30 years. Right. So some of the things that even though, um, I feel like even though students and our school environment has changed, those tried and true practices still hold up and we just may need to adapt them slightly like using different passages to reach learners. Right, yes, right. So I'm wondering, um, because you have spent you know, really a lifetime in education, what's one thing that stands out to you that's changed um, about students and what's one thing that's remained constant? Yeah, one, one thought I have, I, I hope I'm answering your question. 
I'm not really sure that that has changed so much as my thinking, or not even my thinking about learning, but what I'm communicating. Uh, for example, I remember doing a, a project when I was in my graduate study, this was in my master's level, reading uh, some of the work by Stats, and they talked about um, the acquisition of reading, and they talked about it being a slow process. Um, and and they um, used it, compared it to learning to speak. And we, you know, we don't think about this, but children... Uh, learning to speak is, is something that takes place from the time the child is born. Often as parents and others, we uh, lose sight of the fact that we're talking to the child, we're uh, uh, getting that child to imitate us, we're uh, reinforcing the sounds that the child is making and that sort of thing. And there's receptive language before there's, there is spoken language, expressive language. And so, you know, it's only, it's roughly close to the first year of uh, life. I mean, for some children, it's, it's a little sooner, but gradually the child is making what we consider uh, words. They may be just making sounds, but we keep prompting them, you know, so they're saying dad, 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 and we finally prompt them into daddy under certain stimuli. Uh, and the same thing. And so finally, children are speaking words and then they're speaking sentences and, and me, in a meaningful way. And um, and then sometimes it's almost like, sometimes I look at my little niece and she says things and I'm like, where did that come from? And I'm sure you have that experience. They start speaking. Well, the same thing I think is true in learning to read. And except... I don't think we um, look at it in this way. Um, first of all, there's a, a story that I think it's a Hebrew story, and um, but I think it's a beautiful story, whether wherever it comes from. And that is when the mother puts the, takes the child and puts that child on on her lap, um, and this is an infant right after the child is born, and she holds a book in her in her hand, but she puts a dot of um, honey on the book and has the child to kiss the honey. And the notion is to make the child love books. Um, and this is when the child is an infant. And I contend that just holding that child in your arms and at the same time reading to that child, because the child is reinforced by the whole notion of being cuddled by mother and and as you know from the whole conditioning pavlov's dogs and that sort of thing so what we want the child to do is to associate that love of mother love of parents um with reading and and eventually love reading love learning and um and we keep we don't expect that child to immediately read those books. <laughs> we, what we do find over a period of time is the children begin to tell us the stories from the pictures, and they also insist that we read the same book over and over again. And what we are doing is systematically um, 
instilling in that child a love of books and love of learning. And then as the child begins to make associations with those squiggly lines and, you know, that it's saying something, um, they will begin to read. And, you know, as a parent and aunt and, and all the other important people in that child's life, we get so excited about it. Um, and the child begins to say, you know, that word says please or people or what have you. Um, then, you, you know, the child realizes that they can read. And the more that they realize that they can read, the more that they'll want to read. Now, that doesn't mean that every child that goes through that process is going to be a bibliophile. And not every, I mean, there's some people that are just voracious readers naturally, but we want every child to be functional in their reading. And we want them to realize that you are empowered by reading. So, you know, I think that in terms of teachers, in terms of schools, if we think along these lines, um, not every child has that experience, has had that experience that I just described. Some children are born in homes where parents don't read, uh, not because they don't value reading. Many times they're not good readers themselves, or many times they are so stressed by everything else that's going on in life that you know, sitting down and having bedtime reading is a real luxury rather than something that they consider to be essential. So that child may, uh, may begin school without having that experience where they have learned uh, to love books and to love reading. So if we're working with children like that, we have to, um, I feel, make reading, help children to learn to love books uh, before we expect them to be um, very good readers. So that's part of that story that I was talking about in terms of coming up with the Black Panther stories. That's something I knew the children already, I already knew that, well, I shouldn't say I knew, but I highly suspected that that's something that they would like, especially little boys. And so if they got a chance to see this in writing and to realize that they could read this story, which they really enjoy on their own with a little bit of practice, um, it would help them to understand the importance of being able to read books. So um, I think that we need to give a little more time for children who we call reluctant readers, give them a little more time in learning to love books, not in lieu of the instruction that we provide, but in addition to, along with it, yeah. Absolutely, I am just, I'm resonating so much with what you're saying. Um, you know, I've been, I've been teaching kids who have dyslexia in my, my role at the school and um, in my tutoring that I do. And so often parents are very concerned and worried. They know that their child is mm -hmm. you know, one or two or more grade levels behind. We know we have a team of intervention specialists working to, to build those foundational schools. And so they always say, what can I do? What can I do at home? Yeah. And my response is always, 
sit down and cuddle and spend time together with books. <laughs> so um, let us do the hard, you know, the hard blood, sweat, and tears. But you just keep that, you know, you mentioned just that reinforcing that reading books means getting to spend special time with a loved one, <laughs> right? Right, um, exactly. And then it is a human experience and it's about storytelling. And this is one way, you know, literacy is one way we can we can share those stories with each other. And I want to just touch on the fact, you know, it's it's almost um, I think that project we worked on just had a huge impact on me. You mentioned in your recent tutoring, you know, a child having to having to really face front on what may be hard circumstances outside of school. And we certainly face that in our study. And these children came to school, mm-hmm. you know, with stories that I could never, I could never imagine having watch on television, let alone having experienced firsthand. And here they are kind of in a traumatic state and we are trying to get them to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to touch on the fact that the, exactly we talked about in, you talked about in, um, in poor schools or schools that don't have a whole lot of staff, that the notion of computer-assisted instruction may be one way to deliver some of this needed instruction. Mm-hmm. And then I, and, but I'm also hearing you say, we can't take away the human experience of, oh, right. of learning to read and because that's, the kids need to feel loved and safe. And so I just want to touch on, because the mission of Mindful Literacy Columbus is to provide students who are struggling readers with that one-on-one experience to me, what I'm hearing is that's something that cannot be replaced or replicated. It has to be a flesh and blood and breathing human who who wants to spend time with that child. Right. And I want to compliment you for your initiative. I know I said this to you before. I'm just so impressed with uh, initiating this, um, what is it, mindful? Um, mindful Literacy Columbus. Yes. Okay. And I, I hope, um, I wish you a whole lot of success with that because you're, you're right on target in the sense that, uh, that personal contact that, you know, the nurturing is, should never be dismissed. And, um, and too often as teachers, and this is not an indictment of teachers, but teachers have a lot of um, um, pressure on them. And uh, so they're, you know, press to get youngsters performing at a certain level. And when somebody says, when they, one, will have an assistant or other assistants or volunteers in their schools, um, one of the things that I think that should, would come through with the work that you're doing is to help them understand how they can use those people more effectively. Uh, for example, unless somebody has has had the kind of training that you have, it's not realistic to expect them to teach children, but they can be very um, effective in helping and nurturing children. And they need to learn. I mean, if you're working with them, you can train them how to nurture children in their love of reading and things of that sort. And then... Um, uh, then have somebody, a professional such as yourself, uh, provide the, the real meat of this with, with the direct instruction that these children need. And uh, too often we will bring volunteers in without 
them having and expect without them having the the training and the orientation to do the evidence-based practices that we know um, are needed and and they can't do it. Then we think, well, the tutoring doesn't work. Well, it hasn't been applied. <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't been taught. So uh, I think that what you're you're trying to do, and I hope you're able to get other people engaged in, in your project. I hope uh, that uh, blossoms. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, I, you know, I'm a bit of a dreamer. And so in my mind, you know, we've got a center, we've got, we're training teachers, we've got at least 30 kids coming to the center to get one-on-one right. assistance with highly trained tutors. That's my dream. So for right now, you know, having worked on on your project, I learned it is one step at a time. It is one thing at a time. It's navigating challenges that get presented and troubleshooting. Um, and so for right now, for this year, I am hopeful that we can sponsor one child's one-on-one tutoring. I need to raise about $5,600 and I'd really like the scholarship to go to an African-American student or a person of color. And I will share with you that I had a student as a second grader um, who at at the Ohio School for the Deaf who um, just had so much grit and so much growth mindset. And we talked a lot about um, repeated readings providing kids with growth mindset. Um, And she she graduated from high school and she asked me to come to her graduation. So I, you know, I was, we got a, I got to watch her, um, I got to watch her walk across the stage and get her diploma, which, oh, wonderful. Um, gosh, I was just sobbing like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I have this beautiful picture of, of, of Tiana and another student who was in her class and she passed away in a car accident a few years ago. So I'm going to name the first scholarship after Tiana and hopefully present it to a, you know, a seven or eight year old uh, little black girl or boy. You know, I just see Tiana with her. We, you and I have talked about how um, how black girls hair is a very important <laughs> topic. And, you know, so I see her with her little dongle hair ties and is so that that's how I remember her. And I remember, you know, remember sharing that reading with her. So mm-hmm. that's my goal for 2020. Yeah. And I'd like to talk with you in another form about how you're going to do that and how, how I can help you to do that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I do just want to mention, because you have just impacted my life um, in so many ways. And I think going back to get my doctorate was something that was driven by my own curiosity, my own dissatisfaction with me not having all the answers. And of course, you know how that goes. Now I have even more questions, but I feel like what the program at Ohio State did for me was it taught me how to be a better thinker. It taught me how to approach problems with being able to sort of swivel and have different perspectives and be more flexible in my thinking and being able to ask the right questions. Right. Uh, when faced with a problem, but one of the things you impressed, I mean, not only in, in, you know, my mental professional life, but also I think spiritually is this notion of growth mindset. And you were the one who, who taught me that the, the terminology when we were working together was just coming out. Mm-hmm. 
in the field and you were right on top, you were just right on top of the trend and you incorporated that into our project. Right, yes. And I believe in it. And I think that there's a lot of um, value to it. Um, and I've seen some writing since um, to suggest, to reinforce that that whole notion. And it's more than just positive thinking. It is, it's, um, you know, helping youngsters, first of all, to, um, to value and to believe in what it is that they're doing. And I think it's important to, you know, this, this uh, society we live in is so competitive um, that, you know, you feel like you're not worthwhile unless you're number one, uh, unless you're the best of everything. And um, it's important to help children to um, just understand how they are growing. And the more evidence that they get in, or feedback about their own personal growth, uh, the more that they're going to stay the course and the better that they will get. And um, uh, there's, there's uh, you know, and I think teachers and other people, important people in children's lives can help them to believe in this. Um, it's not just rote practice. It's like, you know, we're, do, we're going somewhere. We're doing something that's, that's uh, worthwhile. Uh, you know, we were talking about um, uh, culturally diverse literature. And I just want to give you uh, somewhat related to that, but another example with another one of my, uh, with, with my second niece. And she's just, she's a beginner. She's just learning to read. And so I showed her a book that's entitled My People by, um, it's a poem. Uh, it's based on a Langston Hughes poem uh, entitled My People. And uh, it's written by a guy named Charles Smith. Now he, what he did was take a lot of pictures and to, to superimpose the poem on it. And um, I just happened, uh, by happenstance, I happened to order it. And I, then I learned that it was a Coretta Scott King Award book. Um, and then as I'm reading it, I thought, oh, this is beautiful. I have beautiful pictures in it. And so I said to my little niece, I said, okay, you know, as I work with them, I tell what the older one is going to read. And I said to her, you're going to read this. She said, I, I'm not reading books yet. I said, you'll read this. And uh, so we started reading it. Well, the nice thing about the book, it's a perfect book for beginning readers because it has this uh, repetitive refrain. It keeps saying, my people are, my people this, my people that. And by the time I left her, uh, the first day, she was saying, I love this book. And by when I came back the next week, she was, she immediately greeted me and said, I'm glad I know the whole book. I can read my book. She said, I even know the word also. <laughs> and her mother said, I couldn't get them to read anything else before bedtime besides my people. She was, she even usurped her older sister, like, they had to read five people, no matter what her sister wanted to read. But the point is that just implanting in her the, the mindset that uh, you can read this. It, uh, you know, she started off telling me that she wasn't reading books. You can do this. And if you practice it, you'll do it very well. And, that's, and so she was just like, 
uh, over the top when I and she wanted to read. And we had we had to stop everything and read her book. Uh, and she read it and she know, and then and I had taken the words off the book. So because, you know, I didn't want her just to read the pictures. And so and as I I'm giving her the word, she said, you rewrote the book. <laughs> she figured out what I was doing, but she wasn't daunted by it. She just kept right on going. So it's many times the, the messages that we plant in children's minds that uh, lets them, helps them to believe that they can do something. Absolutely. And so what I'm hearing, and I just want to make, just draw a conclusion for our listeners that we're talking about pairing growth mindset Right. Philosophy of looking at life with culturally relevant material that hooked her into reading it was tremendously important. And the messages that we send are really important, right? So like when we say, I found, you know, my even just like word work with kids who have dyslexia, when we say things like, oh, I don't know, English is just so crazy. I don't know why it's like that. <laughs> then they feel like, well, I have no chance. But when I say, ooh, I don't know why that's like that. Let's figure that out together. Then all of a sudden they're basically acquiring scientific, you know, linguistic skills. Yeah. And it makes it feel more, um, more approachable when even adults like, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why, but I really want to know too. Right. And that, you know, it's just like your the book journeys now you've unlocked just a domino effect right. of momentum. You know, Jessica, um, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking you probably should record your teaching sessions with the children. I, I know you're a fantastic teacher, but it would be your examples would be so good in helping teachers to understand how this should be or could be done. You know, there's I think that it's a great idea. And actually, so I, you know, I was talking to you a little bit about the teaching community that I am growing right now through mindful literacy practice. We have a Facebook group called Teacher Tribe. Um, and you and I talked about, you know, should I change the name? Should and I? Um, and anyway, so we have this group and I've been giving trainings, um, two trainings a month for teachers and it's free. And, you know, if teachers want to get a certificate for their continuing education, they can, you know, pay a small fee to do that. But the trainings themselves are free. So I'm going to think about how I could make that possible of kind of modeling the things that I'm doing with my students. That's a great idea. I love it. Yeah. And and, and if you get the video, you can edit in the, the best parts. And, you know, anytime it drags, you can edit it out. Uh, yeah, but even just to use the video as a teaching tool to in trainings, I think would be really helpful because yeah. we all like to see and experience to learn. <laughs> so right. I have one last question for you. And this is one, okay. you know, when you were in, when you and I were both in Columbus, you had a go-to bookstore when you were trying to find books for your nieces, uh, you know, that were relevant to their African-American right. heritage. Um, right. So now we've, I feel like it's really like people are really tuned in. We've got, we've got people's attention now. And I, I think it's a, it was a lot different being the only, like, you know, being a white person as a minority in a majority <laughs> a school who had black children it was different, mm -hmm. but you know, many white teachers are in schools like, like you grew up in where right. only one or maybe two or a few black kids in the school. So mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, 
you know, I want to take your lead here on where, what are your go-to resources to find books about uh, Black children? Right. Well, that's a, that's an excellent question. And, and uh, you know, I, I uh, have to tell you, um, I just um, emailed her yesterday. Um, I have um, just a, a jewel of a friend who is an outstanding scholar and just uh, internationally recognized in multicultural, and you met her, uh, Rudine Sims Bishop. Uh, she's still in Columbus, by the way. And just about every teacher in that has gone to Ohio State, especially in general ed, knows who she is. And I just emailed her yesterday about the book, My People. And uh, she said, and with the exclamation points, good choice. You know, she, she knows them all. Um, whenever I'm really stuck, I go to her. But one of the questions I, I raised with her yesterday was that there are too few culturally diverse books for, uh, well, in this case, I was looking for, you know, because my nieces are African-American, but I'm also looking at Hispanic and other groups that have that kind of refrain for beginning readers. Uh, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with The Gingerbread Man, Run, Run, as Fast As You Can. That's a wonderful book to engage children or the monster at the end of the book. That's a wonderful one too, because they think, and I even have my own nieces to say, oh, that word says please. And they, you know, and, uh, you know, and so they can tell it, but there aren't any that do the same thing in, in terms of um, culturally diverse books. And she said that that's a problem. Um, now there's, but she did recommend to me one website. These people don't know me. I'm not getting any money from them. Uh, <laughs> entitled Just Us Books. And I am going to go and look at that and see if I can uh, get some real simply written books that are, you know, well done that um, would entice the beginning reader. I hate I hate to say this, but I go online for most of my books. Uh, there is there's still a um, a bookstore in Columbus. I it's now in Upper Arlington, I think. Uh, I, I I know that's where it is. Let me. I'm trying to figure a way, nice way to say this. Uh, actually, you know, I've only been there once. It's a lovely little bookstore, but I haven't had enough experience with them to know how experienced the proprietors are in terms of their knowledge about children's books and also their knowledge about children according to different ethnic and racial groups. I know that um, uh, this particular area has become more diverse, but I don't know to what extent um, they are encountering a, a diverse audience. And one of the real, real problems with culturally diverse books is that they have a shelf life of a nanosecond. And what I mean by that is um, many of the books, for example, one of the books that I really wanted to use on my project, which I didn't share with you what I'm doing right now, <laughs> um, 
is entitled uh, Fishing Day. And I wanted to use that um, by um, Pinckney, by Adrian, Adria uh, Pinckney. And uh, it's a wonderful book. But by the time I recognize that it's merit, it's already out of print. So this is a problem with culturally diverse books is that they are out of print too, too quickly. Uh, they need to be written uh, authentically. Another, I wouldn't say this is a problem, but another concern is that a lot of the books that are written about and for um, children of uh, diverse backgrounds are not written by people from that group. So there, and many of them are really good books. I like them, you know, um, but you want uh, more of the books written from people that represent those groups. And sometimes they, they come under criticism because of that. Yeah. So look at Just Us books, look to maybe talk to a librarian or um, bookstore owner. And it sounds to me, I know she would, she would not shoot me, but even if you emailed my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Email Rudine, Dr. Sims Bishop. Yeah, you can reintroduce yourself by the fact that you were on the project. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then it sounds to me, Dr. Cartledge, like you and possibly your nieces should start writing books together yeah. in the next step of their literacy journey. Well, possibly. <laughs> I, I actually, I've got a project that I'm writing right now and then another time I'll, I'll bounce it off you but yeah we're looking at culturally diverse books uh, which I'm it's sort of out of my element but I'm pairing it with uh, reading and social emotional development which is it's just a huge part to life and to learning how to read right yeah right you said earlier that reading is empowering and it and it is even learning how to develop social emotional skills. You can do that through reading, you know? Especially in developing social emotional skills, you know? When you can't go to anybody else, you can go to a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I just want to emphasize to teachers who are listening to this, who are trying to find culturally diverse books for their students from whatever background they come from, if you've exhausted your resources, I want you to hear what Dr. Cartledge did when she was tutoring she took an existing book and she rewrote it to tailor it to her students' needs. So be empowered to do that too. Well, thank you for reinforcing that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for being on the Mindful Literacy Podcast today. I, it was an honor to have you here and I'm so grateful for the time we had together. Well, thank you, Jessica. And you're terrific. Thank you. Thank you. I, <laughs> I had a good teacher. <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. 
Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening with the deepest gratitude.